Salutations, traveller. Welcome to the Dunkern podcast. I am Dunkern writer in residence, Colin Hazard. If you haven't done so already, please click follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss any episodes of this here podcast. We had a brilliant response to the last episode with the poet Stephen James Smith and actually received messages from listeners from a far afield as Sydney, Paris, New York and Castle Derg. So welcome wherever you are in the world and thank you for listening. So here we are at the halfway point of January and what an odd month it has been. Uh, I guess the good news is we've passed the infamous third Monday in January, which is better known as Blue Monday. That's the day which the experts say is the most depressing day of the year because the excitement of the festive period is well and truly gone. There's no money left after Christmas. The weather's cold and dark and perhaps it was even a little more depressing this year as we're stuck in this lockdown limbo. But sure, isn't it great to have me in your ears as we keep each other company? And I don't know about you, but it feels like the afternoons are starting to last a little bit longer. There's a little bit more daylight. It might only be a few minutes, but it's definitely creeping up. Uh, I've actually just realised I'm looking at a calendar here in front of me. By the time the next podcast comes out, it'll be February. Wow, this year and this residency are going by very quickly. Uh, just thinking about it, this might actually depress me even more, but on Blue Monday last year, whatever date in January 2020 that was, I was enjoying myself in an outdoor swimming pool under sunshine and blue skies in Orlando, Florida. That trip seems like 10 years ago. It doesn't seem possible in my head that that, that week in Orlando took place in 2020 because of everything that came after it. Uh, but funnily enough, I remember on that trip I got talking to a man at the poolside bar who was in Orlando who was due to fly to California on business the following week and then was due to fly on to China for the week after on more business but he wasn't sure if the China trip would happen as there'd been some reports of a virus doing the rounds in China and I think the Chinese were talking of closing the airports and I actually remember this guy saying to me it sounds like an overreaction, but sure, I don't mind staying in California an extra couple of weeks until it all blows over. Ha ha, big laugh. And then we fast forward, what, two or three months and well, you know how things unfolded. But meanwhile, back in 2021, what news of the book I hear you ask? Well, it's coming on. That's where we're at. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my debut poetry book is coming out this year. Hopefully in May, but we'll see how things unfold as I know the publisher has a backlog of books that were due to be released last year. So when eventually my book does launch, I would really like to be able to get out and do physical readings with a, a real live audience. But I think May or even into the summer may come too soon for that. So we're probably looking at a virtual launch with perhaps some live dates then penciled in towards the end of the year. Who knows? Whatever happens, I still have to send the first draft off to the publisher this month, which no doubt will be sent at 11.59pm on the 31st of January, because lastminute.com should be my middle name. But on the subject of the book, I got an email, I think it was maybe two weekends ago now, from the artist at the publisher who is designing the cover for me. And it was the first contact I'd had with her and she'd asked me if I had any ideas for the cover in terms of the style or images and colours and fonts and I'll be honest it's not something I'd really contemplated. My main focus has been on writing the poems. I hadn't thought of what the cover would be 
but luckily or perhaps unluckily for the artist, my wife is a graphic designer and she would be a lot more experienced and a lot more focused than me when it comes to the visual art. So we spent time searching online as well as going through our own book collections and we were breaking one of life's golden rules as we were literally judging books by the covers. And one thing we noticed though was that a lot of poetry books, even books by contemporary writers, the covers are quite serious and quite safe. It's either some random painting or quite often just one solid dark colour with the poet's name and book title in two different brighter colours. Now I appreciate that me talking about book covers isn't the most interesting subject matter for a podcast but the point I'm getting that is that throughout this research if you want to call it that I was thinking about what style of cover would best represent me and my work. Now this won't come as a surprise to anyone who has seen my fashion sense but I wanted something that stood out and I can't say for certain but the artist when she sends out that email to writers in regard to book cover ideas I reckon the writers normally send back an image of some classy painting or artwork of some sort. Or maybe they just say, I'll leave it up to you, whatever you think. Not Colin Hazard. I sent back a five-page PDF with colour schemes, fonts, images, the whole shebang. And you know what? She hasn't replied. So either she's beavering away working on it, or she thinks I'm a total... Although thinking about it, I guess those two ideas aren't mutually exclusive. But I'm intrigued to see what she comes back with, uh, and I'll be even happier once I have the blooming poems written. But my guest on this week's podcast is another visual artist, and not only that, she is a psychotherapist, a hypnotherapist, a photographer, and a friend of mine who I'm currently working with on a poetry and art crossover project, which you can hear more about in our chat. Her name is Fiona Butler. And I'll hand over now to myself and Fiona having a good old chinwag earlier on this week. See you on the other side. Hello and welcome to the Dunkern podcast. And I'm very pleased this week to be joined by a good friend of mine uh, and a fantastic artist, Fiona Butler. Hello and how are you? Hi, Colin. Good to see you. You too. And where do we find you today? I'm in sunny Ballyhalbert, one of my favourite places in the entire universe, actually, because I'm about 30 foot from the sea and and it's pretty, pretty gorgeous at all times of the year. People say, why would you want to live there in the winter? But as far as I'm concerned, it's beautiful all the time. It is the few times I have been down to your house. It is a beautiful setting. And as you say, you're very close to the sea. I haven't been in yet for a swim, though. Do you swim down there quite regularly? Um... I'm not one of those people that that jump in at all in all weathers. Um, although there are a team of girls who come down here to to do that. Um, I'm not sure what they call it, sort of jumping in at all temperatures. But I do go in in the summer, mostly because I throw the ball for my dog out in the water, mm. and sometimes he doesn't bother retrieving it, so I have to go out after it. <laughs> so it's kind of enforced. Swimming. Actually, I used to do uh, what's it called, the dash and splash. That's the one. That's what I was talking about. The mad people. For those listeners who don't know what that is, uh, it's, it's a group um, run by Scott Riley, who meet every Sunday morning, and I think they have been doing it all through lockdown. Um, while while it was safe to do so, where they go for a thirty minute run, so it's fifteen minutes out, fifteen minutes back, and then they go for uh, a bit of a dip in the water at Bangor. So it's called the dash and the splash. And the, the 
handful of times I've been to it, I always come away with it really buzzing with energy. Mm-hmm. Like there's something definitely really, I don't know, life affirming about being in the water. Uh, and you come back, come away from it and you come home and you get showered and warmed up again and get something to eat and you feel like you can change the world. You're like, yeah, I'm going to go and do this project and do that. And then, But it must do something for you. I know when I'm down there walking the dog, like, you know, the girls are all in. Well, I shouldn't say just girls. It is mostly women that go. <laughs> They're always calling me to come in with them. Come on, you should come and join us sometime. But I think it's just because... Um, they just don't want to suffer alone. <laughs> Look, I shouldn't say that. I think it just takes somebody very brave to do that. But you really must get something fantastic out of it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I stopped going in November 2019. And I said to myself, I'll pick it up again in the springtime 2020. And then, of course, COVID came and I didn't bother going back again. And I blame COVID for that. Mm, but excuse. it's really just, yeah, maybe when things, when things get back to whatever normal was, but anyway, we're not here to talk about swimming. We're here to talk about art, and you are a visual artist. That's right. I Many years ago, because I mentioned, uh, I studied graphic design and kind of felt like uh, I was definitely in the wrong, the wrong area. I was in with a lot of people who were very competitive, and uh, it just wasn't in my nature to be like that so was that you were thinking about going into maybe advertising at that point yes or um editing design really was my mm. my thing book edit, editing so i uh, i did an hnd in it and sort of felt yeah i really i really missed something i, I was actually quite jaded with the whole art experience and my other big interest in life is psychology so Shortly after finishing the HND, I decided to do a course in psychotherapy. So I'm a trained psychotherapist. And although that's a very important part of my life and I really love my work, after a few years I started to realise that I was missing the art, not the graphic bit, but the actual being in the conversation of art and trying all different media and... I really felt like I had left behind, I kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater and left behind a whole part of myself. So uh, I used to do quite a lot of kind of leisure classes, you know, life drawing and things. And then in my uh, early 40s, I decided, right, I'm going to bite the bullet and go back. So in 2007, I went back and did a BA Honours in Fine Art, which is just me. I really found my my wee niche in doing that. And I think it's interesting because there are a lot of parallels in my work as a as a therapist and my own work my own personal work as an artist. Like what? Well, I'm drawn to the the process that you go through in uh, in an artistic sense. You start with kind of um, core idea and you develop it and of course everything that you're doing uh, to develop the work is to do with you personally so whether whatever mark you make on the paper or the canvas or you know whatever you create with your own hands is part of you it's a 
whether you like it or not, you know, it's conscious and unconscious representation of who you are. And I think you can grow and learn a lot about yourself through your own art. You, you, you kind of discover who you are and what you want to express um, in, the, in the similar way to, to therapy. It's, uh, well, it's a debate about whether it's um, to do with finding yourself or creating yourself, but it's the same kind of energy that goes into it. It's a kind of an exploration and an inquiry and then, you know, the the constant kind of quest to produce something creative or beautiful or worthy in some way. What do you think it is about people, creative people, that pushes them to create art? Mm. That's an interesting question. I think it's probably something, it's a need within the self. I think it's a real deep need in the, in the, the psyche to express something to to express something about yourself but I, I, I feel it's more than that as well I, I once heard a quote and I really can't remember who it was that said this but uh, some writer said that anybody who's in the creative field wants to actually be the thing that they're creating from so if, if you're writing a poem about say a beautiful landscape this part of you wants to be that landscape or if I'm taking photographs or you know of the water or the trees or something instead of representing them in a separate sense like that's over there and and I'm here and I'm witnessing the trees or the landscape or whatever actually our unconscious desire is to be that to be the tree or to be the water or and I think with every creative person there's that need to identify with what's going on around them. Recently I've been reading a lot about creativity because that's one of the, the reasons I started this podcast was to speak to creative people and to find out you know, why they create and how they create and so on. And the thing is, it's, there's almost like this acceptance of people. People think of creativity as creating art, creating poems, creating something tangible that you can see and, or hear or whatever, whether it's music or poetry, whatever. But I think there's also people who don't consider themselves as creative, but we all are creative in our own ways. So it might be like, I don't know, what's the most boring job you can think of? A bank manager or something like that, something, mm-hmm. you know, financial or a desk check kind of job. But those people have to think of creative ways to solve their own problems. So I guess what my question is, with your experience with art and, and psychotherapy, would you recommend for people to try art, to try and express themselves in a more yeah. literal, creative way artistically? Yeah, absolutely. Uh some years ago I used to run weekend workshops for for people in therapy and on the Sunday afternoon we would always spend the afternoon doing something really creative like when I say really creative I mean I suppose really in the arty field so some people would take photographs though in those days they weren't always immediate a lot of people would draw uh, we used to do clay modelling as well. I would supply lots of that very fast-drying clay. Some people would paint. And there would be no particular guidelines as to what they were supposed to be painting or making. But everybody would come up with something that was relevant to their own path, to their own uh, stage in their own awareness work. 
I, I, I remember I was working actually with my clients rather than just sort of being a, an observer. I actually kind of got in there with them in the process. And I found myself making a series of paper masks and I sort of uh, stitched them all together very roughly and made a little headband. So I had this... Um, these all these thin paper tissuey masks all one over the top of the other over my face and I realised it was because of my part in the process at the time was feeling like I had to be all these different people to different to different aspects of my work or my hobbies or my family you know I had to be I had to be a good therapist I had to be understanding and intelligent and and I had to be an artist and I had to be a good daughter at the time um, both my parents were alive and, <clears throat> and were struggling a little bit with their older age and had to be a good wife and uh, had to be a good mother to my stepson and I realised that these were all these masks so I ripped them all off and that was part of the process it was almost like a, a piece of well it was I guess a piece of performance art mm. so I was revealing myself with each Mask that I pulled off of my face and just left sitting there, kind of very bare and exposed. So you sit when you're sitting with someone and they're looking at your face. You don't necessarily feel terribly vulnerable or exposed, but when you make a whole lot of these masks and you put them on and then you rip them back off again, there is this feeling that you have disclosed something personal about yourself. I I, I remember some of the other pieces of work that that my uh, clients were doing and there was one very, very interesting one that a woman made out of clay and it was just this very kind of uh, like a dome shape, very three-dimensional and she'd carved out a hollow in it and made it look kind of like a mouth with, with teeth, very sharp teeth all around the outside and then she'd put this tiny little um, pretend sort of baby Inside, and I remember thinking that's amazing. It's actually quite challenging to look at. Mm. And she explained that it was part of herself that she'd started to understand in the therapy process. This was part of her inner child who'd felt trapped. You know, the the teeth were guarding her from the outside world. But unfortunately, she was she was having problems with intimacy because she wasn't able to actually um, connect properly with people so when we looked at the teeth we sat for a while and and I talked to her about what would help her to be able to relate to people more to become closer to become more intimate with people and she said I need to get rid of the teeth so she sat and you know snapped all the teeth off of her uh, sculpture and went in and kind of put her hand around this little tiny little clay baby that she had made and it was so powerful that it was it was actually a really massive breakthrough for her in in her own process because she was able to reach out to that hurt part of herself and start protecting it not in a in a fierce kind of uh defensive way but in a kind of a a loving way from her higher self and subsequently almost all of her relationships changed and she became softer and started to actually explore that feeling of, of dropping her defences, all, all just from 
something that she made in an hour with the, mm. of the lump of clay. Yeah, I mean, I I have written poems and I can say things through the medium of poetry that I maybe would never say in real life. And it's amazing just when you think about how in times of extreme emotions or when people are trying to process things, be they good or bad, how they turn to art. And I'm thinking from my side, like poetry, people tend to use poems at funerals and at weddings, which are very obviously extreme emotions. You're either in love with a person and you're trying to express that love or you're expressing some grief or regret. Or And I, I wish that there was maybe more middle ground that people it didn't have it doesn't have to be done in those extreme cases of emotions but if there was some kind of middle ground where people are able to just ex- express themselves i think there'd be a lot less mental health problems but in terms of like your own mental health like the past 12 months in lockdown with all the other the challenges that that has brought i mean how has has it been has it been productive well interesting you say that um it's that kind of enforced solitude i think is it can be really good for creativity because there's no distractions and I'm I'm one who I do love my distractions you know I I'm one of these people who would start to get set up for for a, a painting or a drawing session and end up cleaning out the car or doing the ironing or something because somewhere along the line there's been some huge distraction but actually lockdown was very interesting because I got to really focus on on my work and I started to look at uh, how we respond as human beings in in a crisis, what happens to us, and all the the various different reactions and responses to that kind of external pressure that that a lockdown really is. Uh, some of us fight against it, and some of us go with it, and. Some of us really, a lot of us, I guess, really feel that lack of connection with other people. And mm. for some people, that's so strong. It, it is really a trauma. That's what it feels like, you know, to be cut off from, from friends and family. So, yeah, it's it was, a from that point of view, quite a sort of a, a fertile time. Yeah, you know, I was actually reading a research paper recently and it said that the three best things you can do to be creative get this are walking daydreaming and sleeping oh brilliant i must be the creative person (laughs) the most creative person that i know i've excelled at those three things are you particularly good when you're sleeping because yeah I'm, i'm i'm pretty good at that too i have been sleeping too much recently and that's fine if you're maybe 18 years old but i'm you 38 now and when you sleep into lunchtime it's it's a bad habit to get into well, I think there's a time of night. They say it's around three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning when you're actually at your most creative. But I always think you want to be careful about decisions that you make after that sort of midnight hour because you're you're thinking, although in some sense it's not as as straight, I feel like, and, and regulated as your daily thinking. You know, three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning can be a <clears throat> hugely inspirational time where you're thinking I could do this and I could do that and oh what about that or you know you may have woken up out of a dream or as you say maybe just daydreaming but um, my granny always used to say don't ever make very important decisions after midnight but I do think that a kind of recognition of that state can help to produce some of the most wonderful artwork 
because you've got all this uh, all this space and time to just be and to allow these thoughts to come up. Well, I've, I've made some very bad decisions after midnight on more than one occasion, <laughs> but not in an artistic sense. On the way out of the pub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's quite uh, quite appropriate, actually, for my own writing, because quite often I, I get ideas at, at three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. Right. So um, you're you're in that zone. Yeah. I come back to like my teenage years. I used to sit up and write to all ours, poems, music, short stories, comedy things, comedy jokes, whatever I was working on. And it's been great for the past year to be able to, to kind of do that again. Mm-hmm. But I'm always, say I go to bed at four o'clock in the morning, I always try and get eight hours sleep. So mm-hmm. I'm setting my alarm then for 12 o'clock midday, which mm-hmm. sounds awful, but... No, no, but I'm like that as well. I'm a night owl. And it's funny when you're a night owl because the people who, who are the larks, you know, who are up at mm-hmm. first thing in the morning... It can be very disparaging about the fact that you're in bed until midday. You know, and I have people sort of would joke with me and say, oh, are you not out of your bed until 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock or something? And I say, you know, well, where were you at 3 o'clock this morning when I was up doing such and such a thing? You know, I didn't come around and knock on your door and say, get out of your bed, you lazy so-and-so. Yeah. That's that, that old expression about how people who... People who are enjoying the best part of the morning miss the best part of the night. Oh, I never heard that. That's great. I'm going to use that. What is your kind of creative pattern like? Very erratic. Um, I'm a sort of an all or nothing person. So I could be sitting at a piece of, uh, with a piece of work in front of me and feel very kind of, um, well, the old creative block, you know, and and it's frustrating because it's just, I know that I want to get doing something, but it's just not happening. But the minute I break that, that whatever spell it is that keeps you frozen in your creativity, the minute I, I break that and I start working at something again, I, I would and frequently work till three or four in the morning and not even notice what time it is. Mm go into that zone and you know it's it's that uh, is it theta waves you, you know your brain waves actually change and uh, you are really kind of tapping into your core creativity and it's great because you don't you're not watching the clock thinking oh I should do another hour's painting and I should do such and such and oh I've got to do my preliminary sketches or oh I really need to finish that up it doesn't work like that it's just like Zoom, you're in the flow and everything's happening and you just, you create and create and create and even if you're making mistakes, it's, it kind of feels okay. You're making the mistakes and then you're fixing them, you're sorting them out and as I say, you know, you kind of stop for a break and a stretch and you realise that, you know, hours have gone by that you hadn't even noticed. Yeah, and I, I do see it, like, but like the brain I'm talking about is like a muscle. You know, like if you're doing exercise, it takes a while to get the muscles warmed up. Whereas the brain, I could be sitting writing for two, three, four hours, and it's just crap. <laughs> right. But then you get that you get that idea. You know, it has to get to that point. You have to be like looking or searching for the poem, mm-hmm. and then that's when the inspiration comes. And by that time, it's maybe four o'clock in the morning, and you're thinking, "Oh God, I got to get up at lunchtime." You know, I got to go to bed here. Yeah, and have a normal life. But uh, sometimes I would make notes on my phone. There yeah. you go. That's the way forward. Just as I get into bed and make a note, mm-hmm. because that's a brilliant idea. I'll come back to that tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon, 
And I look at my phone and I'm just like written down sausages and I've no idea what it meant going. <laughs> but it was a good idea at the time. Yeah, what trip was I on? What, what did I want to say about sausages? Did you have cheese before you went to bed that night? <laughs> I would have a wee glass of milk and I think that's not good for you either. You some <laughs> some weird dreams. Well, whenever we were, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever I was at uni doing my degree, uh, one of our tutors advised us to keep a sketchbook mm. of things that you knew you were never going to do because they were too complicated, too big, too expensive. Uh, you wouldn't get around to it, you didn't have time, whatever it happened to be, but you thought it was it was something that you might like to have done. And you know it was the most useful tool because I've gone back to that and looked and thought, I know how to do that now. Or gone back to it with from the from a different viewpoint, from you know, I might be working on one project and I think, oh, yeah, I used to want to do such and such a thing. Here's how we can get them to join up and work together. So, yeah, it's a brilliant idea just to keep writing, keep writing everything down. And when you're my age now, you see, you have to write everything down because it's gone in a nanosecond. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the student days, when you're being told to get this sketchbook, what is fine art? Well, certainly the way it's taught here, it's very much about the thinking process and it's about bringing yourself into a piece of work it's it's so much more conceptual than sitting down and just drawing a picture you know you you are bringing yourself your own story like we started off by talking your own your own thoughts and feelings and fears and achievements and whatever else is is resonating for you you're bringing into your work and fine art is it focused on people on like life drawing going to be anything no no not necessarily uh it covers really any medium that you choose to think of it's really as i say it's about the process it's about what you want to convey so you could be i mean you could be doing performance art or, or sculpture or uh painting you know there's there are so many different ways of expressing the same thing mm. And it's almost, I'll not say it's immaterial what you work with, because obviously you, you work toward having a certain set of skills and practices that you hone. But really in the long run, to me, it's about what feeling you convey in another person. And the strange thing about that is, and something I actually found really, really hard to get my head around, was you're not really meant to dictate to people, well, I shouldn't say you're not meant to. There's a debate about whether you should actually dictate to people what it is you want them to get when they look at your work, uh, or whether you should just remain kind of unattached to that and let people get whatever they want from it, which they kind of will anyway. Coming from a graphics background, and I suppose also being a counselor, a coach, therapist, whatever you want to call it, the you you have an outcome in mind you have something that you want to convey or something that you want to extract but the thing with uh, with fine art is then leaving that open and not trying to be too didactic about it and not giving people a prescription this is what I've done and therefore I want you to feel such and such when you look at it you have to really just leave that there was a, a very interesting piece of writing Roland Barthes uh, who said he wrote a piece called The Death of the Author. Mm. I don't know if you've ever read it before, but it's very interesting about that dynamic where he basically asks you to question 
whether the author themselves or the artist, whatever in this case, um, should just be killed off in a kind of sense that they should not be dictating to you what you feel when you look at the piece. Or whether it's okay to do that, whether it's okay to be more prescriptive and portray a kind of a narrative that you you demand that people can can understand. I think you get into all sorts of of areas where you have to kind of drop your ego a lot because I I remember having done uh, well I did a project some years ago and it was a, a photographic project and my main concern was to to show the impermanence of things so a lot of the photographs were very vague and some of them were quite hard to interpret but they were all about people moving out of the frame so when you looked at the, uh, it's hard to describe something visual of course you know in, in this medium but I'll do my best so there were a series of photographs where maybe the photograph was blank apart from somebody's edge of somebody's skirt as they sort of disappear off the edge or there would just be a part of a movement or a gesture or something and the rest of the page would be blank so it was it was really about impermanence and about sort of fleeting quality of everybody's lives and I remember oh, one woman looking at, at my work and said oh I really want to buy that and I really want to buy that and can you give me the whole series because it reminds me of um that one reminds me of my niece's wedding and it was very happy and that one reminds me of the house that we built in such and such a place and I thought what does she not get anything that I'm trying to convey when I kept trying to impose that over the top I kept having this conversation with her but this is what I'm trying to say this is a re it's really about this it's really about that and um a very good friend of mine who's who's what I would call a proper artist a proper grown-up artist and knows what she's doing um, said to me, don't ever dictate. Don't even try to dictate what people should get from your work. They're going to get what they get and you've no control over that. What artists do you like? Who, who inspired you or who inspires you? Oh, wow. There's so many people. I, I honestly wouldn't know where to start with that. Uh, in a classic sense there's a lot of the Dutch Renaissance painters uh, it's kind of like going into a trance when I look at, at, at some of these paintings because they are so stunning painters like um, Peter Hoch or Jan van Eyck or Vermeer Johannes Vermeer is another one of he's just there's a brilliance to them and there's the whole kind of question as to how come they they were able to reproduce these scenes so accurately on, uh, I don't know, you probably have seen it or heard about the David Hockney's uh, investigation into how they got this fantastic, unimaginable accuracy into into their painting. Perspective and everything was perfect mm. and it was they used a camera obscura, a kind of a camera obscura set up to project the, the image on the wall. But yeah, Vermeer would be one of those painters that just I go back to time and time again. He's so up there, you know, and sort of stratospheric and in, in talent that I don't even think of him as someone I could relate to. But I suppose for for different genres, I have different um, different favourites. I mean, I'm sure you've you've heard of Colin Davidson, portrait artist mm, from 
from here, uh, from Bangor. Um, amazing, amazing talent. I think I've seen all of his exhibitions and I've seen many other portrait artists and, and admired them full on, but have not seen anybody to match to match his talent in, in my estimation. It's the eyes, isn't it? Absolutely. I love the way that he, he, he defocuses the rest of the face, but the eyes are always absolutely perfectly represented. They're haunting and they're su- they have such a massive energy about them when you're standing in front of them. Not just the scale, but like as you say, the eyes, is that, that feeling that you're in the atmosphere of the person. Amazing. One of his portraits was of Seamus Heaney, which was a fantastic portrait. Uh, and I, I, while I could appreciate the portraits that I'd seen of Colin Davidson's, it wasn't until I saw the exhibition where it was people who had been affected by the Troubles. And I can't remember the name of the exhibition, but it was in the Ulster Museum. And when, when he read the little blurb beside each painting mm-hmm. of, you know, whatever that happened to that per- to that person or to that person's family or someone they knew, and, it, and you could see then in the eyes yeah. the story, mm-hmm. that was when I went, yeah, this is, this is fantastic. I know I came out of there in, in tears. It was so moving. So I mean, there's lots, there's lots of different people. I mean, I love um, installation art. Uh, there's some of Anthony Gormley's work is really amazes and amuses me as well. Um, for a sort of pure, a pure painter, somebody who actually uses the paint in the most expressive way, I think, is Jenny Savile. Uh, she's a, I don't know if you know her, but she's a contemporary female painter and she's she does the most um, visceral uh, kind of representation of flesh and she used herself as the model uh, for a lot of her her work and she was just unflinching in her in her honesty and paints people in 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 a very kind of unashamedly real way there's no artifice about it. It's mm. it's, but it's it can be quite. It can come across as almost brutal, in its honesty. Again, it's hard to describe these things, that are visual. You know, it's hard to describe them with words. But there's something very refreshing about looking at an artist who can just say this is how it is, and not have to make it look like something from history or you know refer to, to somebody else's work or to have to make it look nice as it were but just puts it out there as it is I mean she she used her body as I say in a way that it, it was almost like cuts of meat which probably sounds pretty horrible and she didn't stop to think do I look good in this or does my painting look good in this it was just absolutely from the heart um, and maybe it's the same maybe more visceral than that from the gut kind of painting beautiful yeah that that can actually that's maybe one of the, the factors that why people don't put out their own artwork a lot of people are great songwriters or great poets or great artists but in their bedroom and they, they won't show it off to the world because they're afraid of it not being perfect or being judged or whatever that reason is just fear of, of kind of putting their head above the pulpit. There was a, a show that was on Sky Arts recently called Offended, which was presented by Irvin Welsh. You probably know Road Train Spotting, amongst other mm-hmm. uh, books and films. Mm-hmm. 
and he was focusing on contemporary artists who were maybe using art as protest. And one of those artists was called Sarah Maple, right. who had some really fantastic pieces um, protesting against Brexit and about feminism and about you know just um, race as well about you know contemporary issues. Mm-hmm. And I think it's wonderful. I started following her on Instagram, and it's great to see artists using their platform to to deal with these issues. Where like you, you mean you talked about the classic kind of Renaissance paintings and so on. And while yes, we can appreciate that those are very detailed and very beautiful, and, and it takes a lot of skill to do those. The paintings that I connect with are, are things that say something to me about my life. To paraphrase Morrissey, yeah, uh, and I find that quite inspiring. How how we can use art, contemporary in a contemporary way, as to you know deal with these issues or talk about these issues and raise awareness etc I guess you don't have to be exclusive you don't have to like one thing or the other no I know you don't you mean you can appreciate um, all sorts of things and that's one thing I always say about poetry is when people say to me oh I don't like poetry I always go back with well no what you don't like is the poetry that you've read so far yeah. or the poetry that you've had forced upon you more to the point because that's it tends to be in school where people go I don't like it it's old fashioned but that to me is like saying I don't like music and that's that may be true if you've only heard jazz music mm-hmm. but there's classical and there's indie and there's hip-hop and there's rock and you know there's all these different things and it's the same with poetry there's different styles same with visual art absolutely those those sweeping statements kind of <laughs> kill off the conversation pretty quickly don't they when a, a one that you hear a lot in art is well i wouldn't want that hanging on my living room wall mm-hmm. you know and i always think I think of a cartoon that I saw once, something in a newspaper, and it was shortly after one of Damien Hirst's exhibitions of a, I can't even remember, it must have been the the cow in formaldehyde, you know, and and it was captioned, well, I wouldn't want that in my living room. (laughs) Yeah, didn't that win the Turner Prize that year? Yes, he did, yeah. Yeah, And actually, I saw Tracy Emmons' bed. Oh, amazing. Uh, It must be about two years ago now when I was in, where was I? Bristol maybe it was what one of the cities in England I saw it mm-hmm. and yeah it's like okay I can see you know what she's getting at but what would you do with this ex- this artwork if you were able to purchase it where would you put it well that's the thing you only you only purchase things like that to collect you know you're a collector if you're purchasing stuff like that but um, I think we we see only a very very narrow slice of what art is when we think of it as a painting that's going to hang on our living room wall. Mm-hmm. When you think of the installation artist, Christo, uh, you know, wrapping up thousands of square feet of cliff face, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you you necessarily jump out of bed in the morning and think, you know what I'm going to do today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although maybe if he had the idea at three o'clock in the morning, there you go, maybe that's when he had it. So he works on such a massive scale, and obviously it's it's um, land art that a lot of people would look at that and not even categorize it as art. So it just has such a broad remit, doesn't it? It must be the same with poetry. You know, we sort of go from a yeah, I don't know, the somebody really obscure and inaccessible. I can't sort of think of someone at the moment to. I don't know, someone like Stevie Smith or, I don't know, Edward Lear. You're thinking, well, this this is so, so, so different. All of these are 
almost um, they're relatives of one another, but they're not close family. That it would be very hard to say. It's hard to hear somebody say, "I don't like such and such. I don't like poetry. I don't like art." Because you just think, well, you've just flushed ninety percent of the world down the pan without even mm. stopping to think or stopping to observe. But uh, on a on a smaller scale, in more recent years, you've been working mainly on life drawing. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, mm. I think. I think the human body is just there must be almost everything that you can express that you want to express can be expressed in the in the human body there you know there's movement and emotion and fragility and memory and you know you name it I think you find a you find the human body can be an expression of that and I know you do life drawing classes as well I do yeah I love my life drawing classes with Louise. Um, Louise McCartney runs a really great uh, life drawing class in Boom Studios in Bangor. And she's she's an artist herself and she's also the model. So uh, she has a great understanding of the body and how it's represented um, and such a nice sort of easygoing way with her that she's very easy to work with. Um, I've I've been to many different life classes, and some of them are so very strict and run kind of like atelier classes where you're you you go in and you have to stand or sit in a certain place and you mustn't speak and you can hardly breathe and you know the the model. Is, is on a timer switch and she can't move, she can't stay 20 seconds later into her pose and things, terribly rigid but obviously um, obviously very important and has its place but those are not life drawing classes that I would excel in, you know we chat and have cups of tea and look at one another's work and uh, explore different ideas and that's that's just the way I like to work isn't, didn't you tell me once that there's there's classes where the model changes every like five minutes or something, mm-hmm. or maybe not even that long? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of different classes will will do that. We'll set up um, something like a thirty second pose. Oh, that quick? Yeah. yeah. Or two minute pose, and then sort of the bell goes off and she moves. You know, but you get totally totally different quality of drawing. Obviously, uh, I I don't just mean a different looking drawing, but a different quality of of the mark making it happens when you've got 30 seconds to convey something you know it's just it's almost I, I don't even know if this is true or not but it almost feels like it's a different part of your brain that's working mm. and um, you can you can access all sorts of different skills that you didn't realise you had because there's a point whenever I'm drawing that um, I I start to lose it so with 30 seconds or two minutes or three minutes, I can capture something that I'm happy with. But I might try to work on it for more than that and kill it stone dead because I overwork it and it becomes rigid and it loses its its movement. Yeah, it's, it's the same, I guess, in any genre. I know certainly from poetry, some poems take two minutes and they're done. And some poems I've laboured on for years, obviously not continually. I've done other things, but you know sometimes the quick ones are the best ones, uh, and you can spend 
as long as you want touching things up and changing things around and agonizing over it but uh, sometimes just need to get it done yeah yeah you can kill it off very quickly and i i'm very good at that i'm very good at overworking something and worrying it as they say uh, and speaking of which we've both been agonizing over the same project now for <laughs> yeah. for a while yeah uh, so this is we we met in june 2018 when i was performing with my band and you'd come to the gig not to see me but yeah, you blew my socks off anyway. Oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, we got talking afterwards and we have become friends and we decided to work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe you could tell us about the project. Well, I hope I don't tell you something you don't know about already. I <laughs> know, uh, I think I'm actually really excited about it. I kind of go in and out of... of of stages of either worrying about it or just be, being really inspired and excited about it. So, okay, um, it's called Impact from Left. And really, what really motivates me to do it is right back to that conversation of um, personal transformation and personal growth coming through in, in art. What what my main motivation is to, to represent the ongoing transformation that the human experiences from from birth to death and into death. The impact from left describes the transformation that we have to go through when something comes out of left field, that's where the left comes from, uh, that we have to deal with, like a major trauma or, you know, a major loss something that happens in our lives that really knocks us off our feet, uh, metaphorically speaking. And we have a choice then, of course, do we get up? If we get up, how do we recover? How do we get back and find our bearings in life again? What sort of a person do we become after that event? And this is straight from transformational and awareness work I believe that we all have a choice when something happens to us in life we have a choice whether we want to learn from it and I know it's a cliche thing to say but it's cliche for a reason you know whether we we want to use it as a a learning experience or whether we want to become cynical and hardened by it I think that every opportunity for growth is preceded by by some major event and I'm sorry it is that way I'd love to be able to experience personal transformation without having to go through the really shitty difficult bits that we all have to face in life but it just doesn't seem to be designed that way but like I say I feel that we can take one of two approaches so we can get hardened and and we can withdraw and we can become defensive and almost like smaller people when something goes wrong or we can learn and we can grow and we can uh, become develop our, our own compassion become more um, sentient and more in tune with ourselves and, and the world and other people around us so the project really is a is a representation of that. I feel like I want to show it as a representation of the growth and the transformation and the something wonderful happening 
coming out of a, a, a tough situation. And that's why it's done in a series of, we've, we're going to do a series of, we're headed for 12 pieces at the moment, but that may, that may change, of different stages of being unaware of anything about to happen and then something happening, something coming completely out of left field. For me, what, what had me think about this to start with was my my mum's death, which happened in uh, 2004 and was very shocking, um, completely out of the blue. And the choice that I had then to retreat and kind of dwell on it or whether to use it as a kind of a tool to to empower myself more, to get in touch with my more loving self and my more understanding self. You know, I don't always do that successfully myself, but I do hold that as being the goal when I personally go through something. The goal is to reach some kind of better me at the end of it. So the 12 pieces of work, you know, with your wonderful writing will be that journey I know that's an overused word these days but it really is a journey through transformation and and into the beautiful self and I suppose yeah the impact from left rather than sounding or rather than being a a grim kind of thing it's actually a celebration of transformation and how it turns your life about that's uh, that's not what I've been working on Feed you your best lines. <laughs> I've been writing poems about Ryan Giggs and famous left wingers over the years. I don't know what. Uh, <laughs> this, this, okay, different left wingers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, well, it's it's been great because I, for a long time, I've, I've been trying to find new ways to present poetry rather than just on a page or standing on stage and delivering the work. And that's why I put the band together, Dirty Words, that I perform with to, to put my poems to music. And that's why um, in the back of my mind for a long time I've thought I would love to work with a visual artist Mm -hmm. and do some combination of visual art and poetry I didn't really know how that was or had no theme or concept in mind I just thought it'd be something interesting to do and then the universe answered and (laughs) you know brought brought you to the barge that night where the gig was so well that's the same for me that was the way it worked with me was I used to write my own poetry to back up the the visual work but I'm not a poet and sometimes I would look at it and go no that's not that's not right either. I really wish I was working with somebody that knew what they were doing. So I hope that's you, Colin. Well, if it's not me, I can find somebody for you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously we're early stages at the minute, uh, mm-hmm. but we have we have mapped out the the journey, as you called it, the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of 12 steps. And I think it's going to be something really interesting for people. It's been, uh, I think it's if it's interesting for us to create, it hopefully will connect with people and be interesting for them too. So. Well, I think it's... It, it, correlates very directly with the whole COVID situation mm-hmm. you know all of a sudden we you know as a society we everything changed for us it was an impact out of the blue wasn't it definitely yeah. I'm, I'm not sure where along the 12 steps we are at the minute either yeah that's a good way of looking at it actually I guess we're somewhere in the middle where we're we're trying to figure it all out mm-hmm. hopefully we'll get that finished and exhibited this year yep oh for sure so we have we had a bit of interest already. I'll not say too much about it because you know what things are like in the art scene; they can change mm-hmm. quite quite quickly. But uh, I'm enjoying the process anyway. Uh, but what what I wanted to ask you um, as we come to a close, and I've asked kind of everyone this, and I think yours might be quite interesting because of the way your career and how you went back to study again. 
but for, for like say young artists or people who aspire to work in the arts, visual art I mean, would you have any advice for them? I want to say get a job in a shoe shop, but um, okay. you know, I sort of feel like unless you're unless you're a, a really f- um, established, famous artist, you're never probably never going to make a huge amount of money at it because um, th- this is like the bad news, but we've got good news as well. So bear with me. The bad news is um, unless you're really up there. It's it's not a particularly um, good financial route to take, you know. When you're when you're up at the sort of dizzying heights um, and you're selling for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, it's great. But you pay so much for agents and and you pay huge commission to galleries and things, and you may come out with not nearly as much, uh, you know cash as you thought for a piece of work um, so from my point of view I would always want to be a therapist because it's such a an integral part of me but it's just at the same time it's very useful because it's my bread and butter which it allows me to be an artist as well that's not to say I don't make any money out of it I, I do and uh, and it's very it's very nice when I do but it really is a, a labour of love. And any young artist going into that, I would say do it with a heart and a half and do it because of your passion for it and keep doing it. And even if you find yourself on a course that's not right for you or in a job that's that's not right for you creatively, keep doing it, keep exploring it, um, keep exploring yourself, keep on that path of uh, of betterment, exploration, creativity, um, yeah, self actualization. There's a good expression. That's I think what it's all about is who am I? How can I contribute in the world? What can I understand about myself? And um, who, yeah, who do I want me to be? And that can be expressed and achieved through. Meditation, contemplation, architecture, psychotherapy, painting, poetry, you name it. There are so many different different routes to that, that end result. And yeah, if you're if you're creative and you want to go for it, absolutely embrace it and just be the best self you can be and enjoy it. Well thank you very much for being my guest on the Dunkern podcast. Thank you. It was really good. Good fun. Yeah, and before we close, do you want to talk about your life in Amsterdam that we talked about off air? Uh, or just, uh... <laughs> no, we'll talk about that another time. That's for a whole different podcast. <laughs> yeah, definitely. After, after the Watershed podcast. That, um, no, well, thank you. And uh, hopefully we can meet up soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Colin. And you're back with Just Column. That was the multi-talented and inspiring Fee Butler, who you can find out more about on her new website, feebutlerfineart.com or on her Instagram page at feebutlerart. So keep an eye on those digital platforms for more information in the coming months about the Impact From Left project and of course on my own channels too. As regular listeners will know, I normally finish the podcast with a poem. 
and it would make sense to finish with a poem from the Impact From Left collection. But when has anything made sense recently? So instead, you're getting another poem from the book. Uh, back at the start of Fiona and I's conversation, she mentioned how she initially studied graphic design before changing plans. And many years ago, I graduated in media studies before my life took its own unexpected paths. But the dream in those days was to maybe one day, somehow, some way, get to work in the film industry in Hollywood. And this poem, which I'll read for you now, kind of harks back to that feeling. It's called Give Me Tinseltown. And it's the first time I've ever read it for an audience, even though I'm here on my own, but you know what I mean. And keep an ear out for two quotes from my all-time favourite film. Give me Tinseltown. How exciting it must be to use a clapperboard, to push a camera on a dolly, to breathe the stillness of ancient battles and alien planets before action, to have conflict, death and grief stopped on cue, to wrap a shoot and pass a film star in the car park, to drive home on palm tree-lined streets in a pink Cadillac with a bumper sticker saying honk if you something something. Just to think of it makes my heart flap like those palm tree leaves in the Pacific wind. What a life. You can have all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world if you give me tinsel town on a string. But if someday, under the studio lights, I catch drizzle from a rain machine, which starts a slow motion montage of people clutching pints. Roads with paint around potholes, thick gravy, draft excluders, grannies playing guess who's dead. I'll know. Even with hope that my friends tell their friends they know someone who works in the Hollywood with two L's and that he's not up himself. The life don't amount to a hill of beans. Then just as the violins reach their peak, a clapperboard snaps, a scene is cut and the plot thickens as I sprint lot to lot to find the ruby red slippers. Yes, indeed, there's no place like home. Well, except, of course, the Dunkern Art Centre, which reminds me, don't forget to tune in to Take Two this Saturday night, which features the wonderful talents of Connor Scott, Alana Thornburg, Miles Manley, Rita Perry and Owen Lamont. It's the last one of the series, a series finale, if you will. So tune in from 8pm on the Dunkern's usual social media channels and help us go out with a bang. I'll be back again with another podcast in February. So until then, take care, be good, keep her lit and toodaloo.